Hello and welcome listeners to yet another episode of The Right Stuff. Yay! It's been a while. It's been a while since we've done an episode of The Right Stuff, but first and foremost, I want to thank you so much for tuning in for this podcast and listening, because if you are listening to this in December of 2021, it means you are an exclusive content subscriber, and I want to thank you for paying that sweet $5 a month to listen to all of these exclusive podcasts and also read all of those great exclusive articles. So thank you. Feel free, though, to go to storyscreenbeacon.com and check out all the other podcasts that we have. But we're excited to dig into another episode of The Right Stuff because it's been a while. I'm your host today, Bernadette Gorman-White, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Burge. Hello, everybody. (laughs) Coming in energy high. Woo! It's the Tuesday before Christmas. And it's the morning time. And it's the morning time, because everyone's going on vacation, except for me. (laughs) (laughs) You're stuck. I'm stuck. Accepting rosé. Accepting rosé at the bar and uh, sipping on banana bread coffee. Weird combo. Mm. (laughs) It's okay. It's all right. How have you been? We're going to get through it. I've been okay. Really binging on a lot of these 2021 movies, oh, as yeah. I'm sure you have as well. Yep. I'm sure you're probably a good 100 movies ahead of me. Ooh, but... no. I've had a bad I've had a bad year this year, but um I have to I have to cross the 100 movie mark, uh which is like my rule, otherwise I can't do a top 20 cuz I try to you have to see at least this my own rules that I put on myself because I'm insane. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to get there. I've, I've just been really busy this past week, which, uh, yada, yada, blah, blah, blah. So busy. Um, uh, that really all I've been able to do is like watch an episode of Peaky Blinders when I get home with D cause we're watching Peaky fucking blinders moving on up in the world now, isn't it? It's great shit. I love that fucking show. I love talking like that. Yep. 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 I have seen, um, probably around like 60 or so films Hell yeah. from this year. So yeah, I'm feeling pretty proud of myself, but I started out a lot stronger. And then there was like a good lull in like October, I would say. Oh, and yeah. then I'm like starting to really binge these last movies because a lot's I, coming out. I mean, that's the same for me and you probably because like in October, I was watching the Nightmare on Elm Street movies and you were watching the Halloween mm-hmm. movies. So that kind of started taking up the uh, the movie watch time. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Happy to have done it though. Michael and Freddy. So, yeah. Good buds. Good buds. I miss them. Not problematic at all. No. Nope. Didn't mess us up. Not even nope. a little bit. Very direct. You know exactly what's going on with those guys. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, yeah, we, uh, we've been doing... The, we started out this series where we wanted to just follow one person's career um, back in 2020. And we started out with Edgar Wright. We've been doing the Tony Collette uh, podcast, the Collette stuff for a while, but we're getting back into Edgar Wright because A, he's released two films this year that we haven't covered yet, and B, we were both really busy and we didn't want to watch like six new movies. <laughs> we just wanted to watch two maybe again. So <laughs> Right. Easy, easy stuff. So yeah, today we're going to cover the two Edgar Wright films from 2021. There was The Sparks Brothers and then last night in Soho. So I figured we would go in chronological order 
and we would just go ahead and start with uh, the Sparks Brothers. Burge, what was your history with the band Sparks? Um, Kind of like I had listened to them before seeing the documentary. I was aware of them, but not so much as like the powerhouse force that the documentary reveals them to really be. I It was really like I have a lot of musician friends. Um, and I like listening to a lot of music from like the 60s, 70s and 80s. Uh, and it's just, uh, I, I can't exactly remember where I was or like how I first stumbled upon them, but, um, it was definitely still in the, it was before like Spotify and all that stuff. It was still in the mixed CD age because a couple of their songs were on a mixed CD that I got. Um, so I had to have gotten it from a friend at high school, uh, cause that's, we were, we were just like throwing, we wouldn't make mix CDs for each other cause like no homo, but like we would make mix CDs <laughs> for us. Of course. Yes. We must no homo. Um, we would uh, make mix CDs for ourselves and then just like give them like, all right, I'm sick of this CD. I'll trade you. Da, 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 do that. Um, I think that that's where I probably stumbled across them. And like, they're just really poppy and fun and giddy. Like I liked weird stuff like that. Like, um, uh, you know, like tiny Tim. And like, I was the one that was playing tiptoe through the tulips, like blasting through my car as like, I'm pulling into park at school. Um, so I really just, uh, they were on my brain. If somebody said the name sparks as a band name, I probably before watching this documentary would have been like, Ah, uh, yes, Sparks. Yep, I've heard them, but probably couldn't name you a song. Uh, could maybe probably hum one if I really went for it. And now after this year, pretty big fan. Uh, I got them playing quite a lot. Our Spotify list at the theater has been has been uh, infested with Sparks ever since we showed the documentary back in like April or May. And now it's just like you can't you can't stop it. You could be playing absolutely anything on our uh, on our theater spotify uh lobby music uh and sparks will always come up eventually yeah <laughs> i probably played a helping hand in that for sure yeah i uh probably came across sparks back in i want to say like 2015 so i was kind of a late comer to sparks and it was very surprising to me because my mom really like listen to a lot of like really popular 80s music and a lot of synth music and um so i was really surprised that i wasn't kind of like raised on their music but uh over in lincoln nebraska when i lived in lincoln with heath for a, about a year and a half uh, we had a friend and his name was tyler his name is still tyler but um, back in nebraska he i think he was the one who showed me the youtube video of them performing it uh, on television and it has a like iconic performance of you know ron male the keyboard and songwriter pretty much for most of their music um doing that like weird glancing around at the camera and like sneering at the camera and i was like what is this this is uh this is great what is this i need more and yeah then my mom had come to visit not shortly after finding out about them and i showed her the video and she was like oh yeah i love this band and i'm like why didn't you listen to this band when we were growing up it's so strange but yeah so got into sparks like back around 2015 but kind of like fell off as well i didn't really do like a deep dive into their discography at that point in my life and then being a big edgar wright fan 
and then knowing that he was coming out this documentary, um, I bought the tickets for it for Sundance at Home back in February. Mm -hmm. And so I watched it then, and then I watched it when we had it at the theater. And I'm going to go see them in March when they're in New York City if it doesn't get canceled. Yep. But, (laughs) um, yeah, great band. And interesting documentary, right? Interesting documentary. uh, Doc, I mentioned it before on the podcast, documentary was one of like, documentary filmmaking and studies was one of my majors uh, when I was going to film school. Um, I love documentaries. I think that they're like some of the coolest and funnest to like kind of develop and create and make because you pretty much just you really don't even know what your story is going to be until you've actually filmed everything. And then you have to kind of edit it together to create this thing, which me as someone who like editing is one of my favorite parts of the filmmaking process is like a dream because it really is the editor does, uh, does in a way become like the storyteller. Um, and Edgar Wright is a, is, is very, very good at both editing himself and communicating with editors, how to, communicate exactly what he wants to do. He does a lot of fun stuff in this movie as far as like typical ways that documentaries would introduce talking heads and stuff like that. Like he, he does like some fun twists on it. Um, interesting documentary, interesting people that are covered in it. And you know, it's everything that you would want an Edgar Wright documentary to be. As far as I'm concerned, it's everything I wanted it to be. And it's a sweet little movie at the end of the day. Like I rewatched it last night. And it just goes by. It's just like, it's the third time I've watched it. Because like you, I watched it in February at Sundance. I watched it um, when we had it at the theater. And then I just watched it again last night. And it's just like, this movie just, it's extremely watchable. It's very well made. And even though I know the story and everything, it's just really fun to like hang out with those two cutie pies. They are cutie pies. little cutie pies. (laughs) Yeah. I, I think Edgar Wright uh, was very smart in choosing Sparks as his first subject for his first documentary, because I think it was probably going to be pretty much impossible to make a bad film when your characters are so interesting and their lives are so complex and rich. So I think the fact that Sparks were the subject, very easy to make this documentary uh, enjoyable and exciting. It is pretty straightforward. Uh, it kind of just goes through the course of their life. They don't really do a lot of doubling back. You're not really seeing information revealed in like a weird subversive way. And sometimes you'll watch a documentary and they'll reveal information in such an order that kind of takes you a while to piece it together. It's a pretty straightforward documentary. Um, not knocking it, not saying that's a bad move on Edgar Wright's part, because he definitely, while it is straightforward and pretty linear, he is incorporating, like, claymation. Oh, yeah. And he's inviting friends of his to come in and, like, do voices, and the talking heads are really great, and he uses, like, paper animation. Yeah, the paper animation stuff is, like... It's so good. It's so cool, because it's, like, that's one of the other things that's so much fun about documentaries is how advancements in technology allow for like these mm, these methods and tricks that almost every documentary ends up using for about the next like 10 years um one of the perfect examples of this would, would be like when um when they take a photo and they separate the background the foreground and the middle ground 
uh, and then any characters that are on it. And then they start moving them differently where it almost kind of makes a photo. Um, it makes a photo just have more oomph to it than just a zoom in or a zoom out or a pan or like a spin. It gives it a little bit of um, um, reality. It makes it feel alive. And like that started to be developed like in the late 90s and a lot of people weren't using it. And then all of a sudden when, you know, like documentary series, like miniseries became a thing, everyone was using it. And now you watch any documentary, every fucking documentary uses that. And I kind of like how this is like an even bigger version of that where it's like, well, we don't really have any footage of this thing that they're talking about, but we can just take pictures of them and just animate on like other paper and stuff like that and just have that go. And it's, there's, there's a, there's a whimsical like feeling to the whole thing where it's just like, that'll be a lot of work, but wouldn't it look really cool? And Edgar Wright is just like, cheerio, governor, let's do it, you know? <laughs> we can make this work. Yeah. We've got all the time in the world. I wish Edgar Wright yeah. talked like a peaky foot and blinder. That'd be nice. <laughs> I'm sure if up. you asked him to very politely, he would do that for yeah, you. Yeah, it'd be good. Whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> he would probably enunciate a little too much, yeah. though, wouldn't you think? Yeah. He'd have a hard time completely slipping into it. Yeah, Tom Hardy just showed up in season two. He's good. He's good. Yeah, Peaky Blinders is still on my list. It's a good fucking there, show, but... man. It's like a, a lot like um, a lot like uh, I'll I'll take any opportunity to sneak Peaky Blinders in there somewhere because I think it's a really special. It's it's and it's a lot like um, we just did our uh, Jupiter Ascending screening last night. Um, not a packed house, big surprise, Aww. but uh, yeah. an extremely fun watch. Uh, turned a lot of heads. Uh, everybody really enjoyed it that was there. Um, had a great Q&A afterwards with um, the absolutely lovely, most of the time, Linda Codega. Um, <laughs> and it's like we were talking about the idea between dumb and um, purposefully silly. And Peaky Blinders gets called dumb and stupid a lot for like a lot of its needle drops and stuff like that. But it's like, no, it's all purposefully like having a fun time it's kind of making fun of boondock saint stuff just as much as it's kind of embracing boondock saint stuff like it's cool i want to ha- yeah i want a peaky blinders poster on my wall it's christmas time i want to oh <laughs> i want a peaky for in blinder poster up on my wall now isn't it yeah <laughs> okay anyway um well seed those ideas for next christmas in case no one got you a peaky blinders i'm gonna get it myself poster. i'm gonna get it myself oh I'm gonna, Treat yourself. Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want one right now. I got really excited when I thought about that. Because <laughs> like, a poster is great because you get to see it every day. It's true. It's great. It's true. I don't have time to watch an episode of Peaky Blinders every day. Um, but you can look at a poster. Exactly. It's, it's a, a picture is worth a thousand words. And get a little Killian Murphy up there. Oh, yeah. yeah. Never say no to that. Legitimate business. <laughs> yeah, it's good. You buy yourself that poster. Mm-hmm. I might, mm-hmm. I might have to fucking make it. I don't know. Do they make Peaky Blinder posters? I'm gonna put it. I I'm gonna know. put it above my bed <laughs> to fall asleep looking at it. Diana's gonna love that. She is because she loves the Peaky Fulton Blinders. They're moving on up in the world now, ain't they? Yeah, it's good. <laughs> I'm also very grateful uh-huh. to uh, Edgar Wright making Sparks Brothers. Because 
I don't know if I would have been as actively tracking Annette, which also came out sure. this year. And because I saw the fact that they were covering Annette in the documentary, it made me anxious and excited to watch it. Have you watched Annette yet? I have not. It's in my it's on my list to watch, obviously, because of my 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 rock, Adam Driver. Mm-hmm. Um it's in my uh three hour <laughs> Pile. Yeah, it's a long. It's a one. long movie. I've got a few movies that are like three hours long, like Drive My Car. I've got a couple of those where, like, I'm putting them off to the side. I think me and you talked about this um, at the Spider-Man No Way Home premiere uh, mm-hmm. uh, about. Sometimes it's just like you get to the end of the year and you've got a couple of these three-hour movies. You're like, I could fit two hour and a half movies into this time. Uh, but I'm very excited to. Uh, I'm very excited. To watch Annette for multiple reasons, um, the Sparks Brothers scoring it being one of the high ones. I also hear it has an awesome opening. Um, have you seen it? You've seen it. I have seen it. Yeah. So I, I I've heard good things, uh, and yes, I will watch it eventually. And but the Sparks Brothers, the Sparks doing the score for it and composing all of the music and everything is one of like the more interesting things about it like i agree with you like that that the documentary put that movie on my radar much more in a way that i think anything else really could have right yeah yeah and that movie too put on my radar because i wasn't following franz fernand at the time i saw franz fernand back in 2008 i want to say i was in college i was an undergrad and i went to see franz fernand and i've been a huge fan of that band as well had no idea that they had done a collaboration album with sparks with ffs so it got me into that music as well it just felt like there was a lot somehow that i had missed yeah. over the course of the past like 10 years when it came to sparks um i listened to hippopotamus when that album came out but other than that like i was pretty in the dark when it came to sparks so i was really happy that Edgar Wright chose to really kind of like lift the veil on what Sparks have been doing. I mean, not only in the early parts of their career, but up until now, it's wild that the documentary itself is so comprehensive. I don't know if I've watched a documentary that covers that amount of ground uh, time-wise, other than like possibly like war documentaries. I feel like those documentaries tend to tell stories about large periods of time but typically when you watch a documentary it's usually like pretty honed in but this one was so just expansive i was just really impressed i mean it's like what two hours 20 minutes maybe two hours 15 but they managed to cover Mm -hmm. like from childhood to now so it'll be interesting to maybe uh watch it you know in a few years from now it'll be kind of strange to not have like the most recent chunk of sparks history as a part of that documentary but it'd be fun if, like, Edgar Wright every five years was like, let's check back in with Sparks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, releases, like, little vignettes of, like, what they've been up to. Yeah, add it on to the end. Yeah. Additional content. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... Uh, <laughs> I agree. Like, it's kind of, like, the perfect... It's the perfect, like, material for somebody like Edgar Wright who, you know, music and, like, pop culture is such a big part of his kind of his style you know it's like that's kind of what he's all about and that's kind of what sparks is all about too and there's just this you know it's this 
unbelievable story that's true and has all these moving parts to it and so many people have been involved with it because it's lasted so long and it's just just like throughout the music industry and you can just like you can just track it and go through which is why I think it's just got so much ground to cover because there's just like oh every part of this is interesting and they just kind of just keep going and going and going all the way up until even some of the most interesting stuff which is like you know where they've been for like the last like 20 years which is just like working making music and just kind of like getting by like year to year it's pretty wild stuff and it kind of works for again i i think it's 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 just perfect edgar wright aesthetic it's like it's like their characters that he created <laughs> like it's 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 very it's very cool how naturalistic all of the stuff with the sparks with the two Sparks brothers and all of the uh, interviewees and stuff like that, how all of that very naturally blends together as the story unfolds. Um, You know, it's with documentaries, you can usually just let like people who are answering questions and telling stories kind of guide the narration, or you can have a narrator. Um, And I just, I really like how Edgar Wright approaches this movie and just kind of lets the stories that everybody's telling about it kind of guide, um, you know, from the point A to the point B to the point C. And by using different animation and all that different stuff, like it really kind of brings out more right-isms. Like, you know, there's some Scott Pilgrim in there and there's some like Shaun of the Dead in there. And it's like all of his little things. Um, he's an insanely interesting director, which is why we started this show about him anyway. And he's, it's very, we'll talk about this soon on the later half too. It's just very interesting where he's going as a director, as he's, growing up and kind of maturing and evolving into a different form of what he started out at as like in the early aughts or even in the late nineties with stuff like spaced. So it's like him making a documentary, even about something as like goofball bananas as like the Sparks brothers um, is really cool and interesting and like a maturing, like another maturing evolution in him becoming like a, I don't want to say a legitimate director because he is a legitimate director, but maybe uh, in the eyes of people who maybe look down upon stuff like Scott Pilgrim and, you know, the Cornetto trilogy, like he's, he's still a genre dude, but I feel like he's slowly starting to kind of break away from like his horror comedy roots that maybe follow him a little bit and making a kick-ass documentary that is most definitely going to get nominated for some shit um was this was was sparks like part of the oscar the award season this year because it wasn't Ye- it, it wasn't released I think it until came March. out yeah i think it came out too late mm-hmm. so i think it would be considered for this coming oscar season i, I think mean, you're that's right nice with this one and annette they might have a pretty good <laughs> shot <laughs> sadly as much as i love annette sadly i don't see Annette getting a lot of love. I think it's pretty divisive, but mm-hmm. we'll see. But maybe score. Maybe score. Maybe that score. would be cool. Yeah, you make a very, very good point. It's cool. I don't think it's uh, commonly done. I might be wrong. You know a bit more about documentaries than I do. It, it's kind of rare that a director goes in both lanes, does documentary work, and also does narrative fiction work. That's a rarity. Um, sure, yeah. it's, it's yeah. You, you can do it because it's got the same bones and everything, and sometimes people – it's all about a director falling in love with a 
a project, a project enough to want to do it. Like Martin Scorsese is a big example where he he does documentaries all the fucking time because he's about the Rolling Stones, his favorite band. Um, <laughs> and that's pretty much like how he rolls. It's like he'll he'll just do like band documentaries and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, you make a really good point that it was almost, I mean, it's very informative for Sparks themselves, the band, but it's also very informative to Edgar Wright and clearly his love for this band heavily influenced how he makes his own movies. And yeah, it was kind of cool to like also take a peek not only into the Mail Brothers, but to look inside Edgar Wright's head too and figure out like, how did you get this way? <laughs> what influenced you? Because yeah, Sparks is pretty like cuckoo bananas as well. And that does kind of explain things with how Edgar Wright, you know, makes movies. Like, kind of sporadic, kind of, you know, eclectic, just interesting choices that he makes. I can see him being heavily influenced from just being a Sparks fan. And also, being a Sparks fan, knowing how Sparks struggled so much with popularity and acclaim, I feel like if you're a kid and you're growing up, and you like Sparks, and you're kind of one of the only people who you know that likes Sparks at the time, it kind of sets you up for being able to appreciate like failure and being more comfortable with making something that's a little bit outside the box because the people that you love and respect as artists also make things that are kind of outside the box and don't really fit a certain mold. So if anything, the fact that Sparks exists and Edgar Wright was such a big fan of them growing up can tell you a lot about just Edgar Wright's tenacity in his filmmaking. And it kind of like emboldened him to make the choices that he ended up making, which is pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's uh, these, these uh, two artists, you know, three artists or however many artists you want to put on there, but if, you know, Sparks, the band, Edgar Wright, the director, uh, they got the same vibes. They're giving off the same energy, you know? So it's, it, it really is kind of like, it's a perfect it's a perfect setup and I think it's a perfect execution. I remember when, you know, I think we were talking about on our last episode of Edgar Wright, you know, before we knew anything about Last Night in Soho, back when like it seemed like it was gonna be more of like a noir mystery uh -huh. than a gothic mystery. Um and we knew that there was a documentary coming up and we we're just like, it's gonna be it'd be very interesting to see Edgar Wright play in both of those genres. And, and see what he can do. Uh, and, you know, Sparks, the Sparks Brothers was not a disappointment in any way. Uh, I'd love to see another documentary that Edgar Wright would make. But, you know, I can wait as well, like, until he can find, like, the next thing that he wants to do. Um, it's, he, he's, he's a good director. <laughs> you know, it's, we've been talking <laughs> about, like, we covered all of his stuff and everything. And it's like, at the end of the day... He's just a very, very good filmmaker. He gets film. He loves film. And a documentary is a good way for a filmmaker to be able to show their love for something else that they're passionate about through the thing that they are maybe the most passionate about, which is filmmaking. And he's someone who loves making movies. He's someone who loves movies. You know, he did the whole... You know, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention like Edgar Wright was kind of like at the forefront of like trying to save cinema and theaters throughout the pandemic and all the lockdowns and stuff. He got, you know, the Empire magazine um, where he interviewed and asked like all of these famous people, uh, you know, movie stars, directors, editors, writers, everything in between um, about their favorite like cinema moments and being in theaters and everything. It's this amazing 
copy of Empire that I was lucky enough to be able to grab a copy of. Um, and it's just exhausting to read. It's There's so much in there. Uh, I still haven't read the whole thing, but it's all just about the pure love of going to movies and everything. And Edgar Wright was very much at the forefront of um, trying to spread the news about that on social media and stuff like that, along the same lines of like, you know, someone like Christopher Nolan or, you know, pe- uh, Martin Scorsese, people who were trying to save cinema. I mean, it, it, it's 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 removed now, but like there was a part there where it was like, we didn't know if movie theaters were ever even going to come back, like, or in what capacity it was going to happen. And as someone who owns a movie theater, it was really scary. Um, but it's it's one of those things with Edgar Wright where it's like he's so passionate about not only like the process of making movies, but also just like the way that they're experienced and you know the way that they're supposed to be experienced in a movie house or a cinema or something like that. And Sparks Brothers is just like, you feel like you're at a show sometimes. Like the music is great. The music is loud. You're having a good time. And, you know, if it if it wasn't for the fact that you were sitting down watching a movie, you might be dancing around too, you know. Or maybe that doesn't stop some people. I don't know. Yeah. Who's to say? Yeah. The, the last time that I had watched a movie that wasn't like a straight up concert film in theaters that made me feel like I was at a show like that was A Star is Born. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you that it was such like a ecstatic and happy experience watching Sparks Brothers in theaters. And Edgar Wright's love of film definitely comes through because obviously he's taking a medium music and the music industry and somehow making that music industry vibe and uh, course study. It doesn't seem like it goes like through like a translation machine to get to being on film. Like he somehow doesn't lose any of its actual impact in its original medium by putting it on film. Where sometimes if you do watch something that is taking something from a different art form and translating it onto a different thing, like on the screen, sometimes you lose that importance and that energy, Mm. but somehow he like helped magnify it in some strange magical way that I I fear like a lot of filmmakers probably wouldn't be able to do. Yeah, I agree with that. Magic is a key word in that. He's he's a magic man. And he's a magic man. It it just goes to show you just how, you know, I'm a big fan of sincerity, uh, especially in art and especially in movies. Um, It's one of the things Diana asked me once, like why I like pop music so much, like, you know, like, like just jamming out to Charlie XCX and stuff like that. And just like, she's like, what is it about this music that really like pulls you to it so much where you just listen to Taylor Swift all the time. And I'm just like, there's a sincerity to it that I don't, that I think is lacking in a lot of other music that I really like. Um, Which is ridiculous because music by its very nature is performative. Like it's, it's, you know, if I wouldn't call it insincere, but it's definitely closer to insincere than sincere just by its very nature and definition of what it is. Um, uh-huh. But I, it's when you've got someone like Edgar Wright, who just goddamn loves his job and is really goddamn good at it, it just goes to show what you can do when you're just in the right position where you're doing what you love and you're and you love it so much that you've learned so much about it that you're just very good at it. And then you can be surrounded by people who are also very good at what they do. And you just make, you make fucking art. Like you, that's just what, that's the perfect kind of combination of what everything is. It's like, 
it's one of the reasons that a lot of James Gunn's movies are so fucking good is because he just uses this crew that he has that he loves working with and they just make awesome fucking shit and you're just like, yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's good. I love movies. <laughs> I'm glad that we even, you know, got back to this The Right Stuff series because honestly, watching Sparks Brothers, I didn't really know what we would talk about per se, because it's just one of those things where it's like the piece is telling you what it is. Yes. Like the movie itself is the conversation. Mm -hmm. So I didn't really know what we would really get into talking about it because pretty much like you're watching it and you're just like, this is a good movie. Mm -hmm. This is a good movie. <laughs> like really what else is there to say about it? But yeah, and it, it, it's it, great. It really is just a good check-in on Edgar Wright, all the things that you like about him. They're still there and he's only getting better and more powerful and stronger uh, and one day he'll be unstoppable. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very excited for him. He's a good dude making good movies. Yeah. The world is his. Like he's, I'm glad that he's so well beloved and, you know, people are really starting to get into him and I think that's great. Yeah. He's opening up. Like it's, it, it's really crazy. You know, I mean, it seems like as good a time as any to start kind of breaking into last night in Soho, but Let's kind of it. peppering like the position up there is, um, you know, we showed last night in Soho here at the theater and uh, for the most, and we live in a pretty, our community that we have around the theater is pretty um, film oriented. Like the people who come here mm -hmm. a lot love movies and everything. And I got to tell you, a lot of people did not know who Edgar Wright was. And it was really, really weird. That is weird. My experience of like people coming to see Last Night in Soho, for the most part, people didn't know who the director was. And maybe that was just my experience. Of course, there were some people who were just like, I love Shaun of the Dead and I love the... Those people did exist. It's not like no one was coming in knowing. But for the most part, like general audiences didn't seem to really know who Edgar Wright was. And I thought that that was weird because I was always under the assumption, not just because I'm a big movie nerd, but I was under the assumption that Edgar Wright was like a known name. From just like Scott, yeah, you're coming to see yeah, his from new like movie. Scott Pilgrim yeah. and Baby Driver, like you know Edgar Wright's name is all over it. You know, it's also very weird that like last night in Soho's poster is like from the director of Baby Driver, as opposed to like maybe something that's more in line with that. But Baby Driver is probably his most serious movie, and last night in Soho is probably now his most serious movie. Because uh, Baby Driver is still kind of a comedy um, deep down. Like, it's it's a very funny movie. Um, mm -hmm. I just, uh, last night in Soho, uh, just like at the top here, like I was just very surprised by the amount of people who were not familiar with Edgar Wright, the director. They were just coming to see this movie that we were showing the trailer for and just having a good time and checking it out. And I really thought that it was going to be more of like, you know, a right fest. Like people were going to be like, it's Edgar Wright time. And uh, I didn't get a lot of that. I didn't get as much of that as I would have thought. Yeah, that is strange. I suppose looking back on it now that most of the people that I talk Edgar Wright specific films with are just in that circle anyway. Right. I don't feel like when I talk to people generally about movies that Edgar Wright comes up and if he does it's because the person i'm speaking with usually also is a fan mm. so yeah that's a very good point that is strange but i mean he likes to dabble in like fairly different types of filmmaking and pretty like different storylines i mean you have Shaun of the dead which is like a horror and then like 
he'll have hot fuzz and that's more of like a cop buddy drama and then i don't know like he changes it up enough yeah. that maybe his maybe there isn't a through line for people if they aren't looking for the through line yeah it's like if so, it's if simon Pegg and nick frost aren't in it they're like Meh. you know they're <laughs> who? like who yeah oh poor michael smiley who's like also in the majority of his work oh yeah he's not enough michael smiley <laughs> yeah Ah, uh, but yeah, last night in Soho. That's uh, interesting that people came out and didn't really know. Was the general overall response to last night in Soho at the theater good? Um, Did people come out of that film jazzed? Honestly, no. Uh, really? The again, only speaking from the majority that like the people that I talk to because we have other people that interact with everybody here. Um, for the most part, a lot of people were kind of coming out and just kind of being like, eh, "It's okay." And I was like, that movie? Okay. All right. Cool. And I just feel like a lot of people, I also know for a fact, like, you know, people like even our own Robert Anderson, who saw it and wasn't really jazzing on it at first. And it took a couple days for him to like kind of mull it over and chew on it. And then he came back. And as far as I know now is like, loves the movie. And I think maybe that kind of hit with some people. I know that I was a little bit like that too. It took me a couple hours to like really kind of chew it over and kind of, um, uh, it was a lot like uh, Tatan where I wasn't really ready to start talking about it immediately. I knew I liked it. I knew it was well made. I enjoyed myself while I was watching it. Um, uh, I had to watch it again to really, last night in Soho, to really, really um, appreciate what he what Edgar Wright is doing in it um with all of his genre bending and homages and all that stuff um because if you remember we we saw it early mm-hmm. um and it was a very very busy day for me like I was running late to the screening to like let everybody in <laughs> to, to to go watch the movie um and so I was yeah. I was a little frazzled uh when I was watching it and it's a very frazzled movie it's a very it's a very um it's very manic. It's very manic is a good word. Like the vibe of this thing is uh, paranoia. And um, you need to be in the right headspace to try and to try and really appreciate all of the, the little things that he's doing. Uh, but yeah, for the most part, uh, you know, I had some great conversations with some people in the lobby of the theater after they got out about like what the ending meant and, um, you know, what's what's Edgar Wright trying to say about the the different things that he's doing and everything and you know that that part's really cool because it is an interesting film in that it is most definitely attempting to say more than just spooky right you know the the, the politics right. in this film uh, are apparent but um, the intentions and what you can read into them is uh, I don't think firmly grounded on what maybe Edgar Wright was attempting to do I think he does want to leave it open for people to kind of bring their own experiences and stuff into it to, to kind of reach a conclusion and a, and a, and a, a thematic point, you know, to the A, the B's and the C's of it all. So those conversations were very interesting, but it, some people walked out and they were just kind of like, eh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously listeners, if you're listening thus far, there aren't any spoiler free sections of this podcast. So yeah, we can get into the nitty gritty mm-hmm. um, of plot but I will say I'm not surprised that people came out a little lukewarm because I do think there's this frenetic energy going on through the majority of the film that it somehow loses a little bit of by the end of the film. Um, I do think 
towards the very, very end where we see the the split shots of Sandy the younger and Sandy the older climbing up the staircase, uh, chasing Ellie, uh, attempting to murder her. I will say that during those sequences, it does almost seem to tend to feel a little silly. Yeah. And there's like a silliness to it that I think probably shouldn't be there. Especially I, at I that really moment. Um, yes. It, it, it looks a lot like Spider-Man Far From Home when he's in Mysterio's like uh, yes. weird world where things are just like kind of cartoony, which I love in in the Marvel movies. I love how Doctor Strange... Uh, cinematography from Scott Derrickson in Doctor Strange movie is starting to like creep into the rest of the Marvel universe. I'm like, cool, look like in that. A big That's way, good. Yeah. Um, there, the, yeah. There's moments in it that are silly in 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 a Last Night in Soho, but I agree. The ending, in its frantic manicness, it is sometimes it can be. It comes across as a little silly. But it's intentional. Like, I don't think that I don't think yes. that he wasn't aware of how silly this looked. He's trying to hearken to stuff like, you know, he's 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 trying to like Dario Argento. He's trying to like Suspiria mm-hmm. and use colors and all this different stuff. And, you know, French, like new wave um, gothic horror and mysteries and everything. Um, but I do agree that I, I think that the ending maybe needed to be treated a little bit more because um, he's going for cool. And he's going for exciting and Mm -hmm. he's going for style and stuff. And that's one of the moments where maybe the style just kind of gets a little in the way of like understanding what's going. Yeah. 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 I agree with you. Um, When we've talked about right movies in the past, I've, we've always had the conversation of like, which one speaks to you the most. And I've always kind of landed that space to me as my favorite because uh, Jessica Hines helped write spaced. And none of his other work, all of his other work is like pretty male centered, uh, male protagonist, um, pretty like male heavy. Not to say that he does a poor job of writing women, but I do think that he knows his wheelhouse and he knows what he's good at. And so he typically likes to write for his friends like Simon and Nick. Um, and it tends to feel a little male dominated. Uh, Baby Driver was an interesting way to kind of like subvert those expectations because I think there were some pretty strong female roles in that. But even in like Scott Pilgrim versus the world, the women are kind of like skewed version of like the male characters in a way. So I do feel like with this film being predominantly feminine and predominantly female and more about what it means to be a woman and, you know, handed down trauma and generational trauma and all of that, it was co-written by a woman and i always forget her name because i'm really unfamiliar with her but christy wilson carnes uh co-wrote the script with him and i think that she definitely imbued knowledge and information into edgar wright's writing style that really helped this movie but i do think it runs just maybe a tad too long and i think the conversation between male versus female and what happens when a man invades a woman's body and how the film treats like a woman's body as like a haunted house is very interesting but i wish they maybe would have explored that a little bit more it's interesting it's like either i wish they would have like barely gotten into that at all or the movie could have just been a little bit longer even so that they could have gotten more into that dynamic 
Yeah, no, that's that's a good point. I it's they he scratches the surface of some very interesting stuff, and then it doesn't really go into some of the more um, mysterious, interesting kind of politics and stuff that he's going for. And sometimes, sometimes it's more like kind of putting the mystery and the twists up front as opposed to really kind of digging into these like deeper kind of themes and everything. I think maybe he just doesn't want to weigh it down uh, or slow it down or something like that, which I would have been fine with. Um, mm-hmm. And again, like I, I, I like this movie it is good. It's a good movie. Uh, I had fun watching it a second time. Um, but you know, it's a it, perfect. It is not. Uh, and it's, it it really is like kind of going back to what you're saying. Like the ending is the thing for me, where like when all these things start being tightened up, tied up, and everything, I do I do wish that maybe it was um, a little more like everything you just said. I wish that maybe they kind of just like expose the nerves of the themes a little bit more, because um, I think that they're there. But again, going back to Sometimes people like that I've talked to and and even myself, like you have to think about it for a little bit to kind of get to like what your take on it is. And I think that's because the themes are, you know, very blatant on what they are. This is obviously there are themes of like gender roles and all of these different things and, you know, history of trauma and almost the guarantee of future trauma coming based on your sex. And it's just trying to figure out like what are the writer's takes on this and how does the genre and the story um, connect with those themes and everything. Like, I love what you said about like women's bodies being treated as like a haunted house, because that's just like this really cool idea to put into this kind of, you know, seventies inspired kind of uh, European, um, you know, Gothic mystery horror. Yeah. I also really like what the film has to say about clothing and who clothing is for. Um, I thought it was really cool that obviously Ellie, our main character, played by a really fun Thomas and Mackenzie, like Very fun. she was just really like sinking her teeth into this role. What are the best voices? Um, oh, I don't really know what was going on with her voice in that movie, but she I liked just talks it. like that. That's just how she talks. Does she? Dude, it's uh, we. I were watching um, the Power of the Dog. Have you seen the Power of the Dog yet? Not yet. Really good, and I knew that Thompson McKenzie was in it, or at least I thought I did. And she doesn't show up for I a while. I didn't know she was in it. She doesn't yeah. show up for a while, and she's just kind of in the background, like not to get too specific or anything like that. But it's like sure. you're like, is that Thompson McKenzie? Is it? Is that her? And then as soon as you hear her little cartoon mouse voice, you're just like, nope, that's Thompson McKenzie. There she says, oh. Oh, well, I don't know I about that. <laughs> I was trying to remember from Jojo Rabbit. I was like, did she sound like that in Jojo Rabbit? I can't remember. Mm. A little bit. It's like when she was younger, she just sounded like a kid. Now she's older, but she still sounds like a kid. And she's just like, oh, hello. Oh, I don't know very much about that. It's like somehow raspy. But yeah. not deep. Yeah, it's. I, it, really- I mean, it's kind of like the perfect voice for something like uh, her character, like Ellie. Like it's, it's, it's weathered, but also optimistic. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 <laughs> 
But I love that she is so obsessed with fashion, and rightfully so. I think that's a super cool thing to study and to participate in. But I liked, too, that she was so obsessed with the 60s, and so she really harkened back to that type of clothing. And then how terrifying it is when she finds out that most of the clothing in that day that she was really, like, being spoken to through, and the clothing that she really identified with, was clothing that people who weren't really in their own bodies had to wear. And the fact that women constantly, and men too, I think men's fashion's maybe a little bit more transparent than women's fashion, but a lot of the time you have to wonder, like, women's clothing, is it kind of, even if it's a female designer, is it still kind of being governed by the male gaze and what's appealing to men to look at? Mm. And even though women feel like they might be in charge of how they are presenting themselves in clothing to the world, you have to kind of like dig deeper to see that maybe it's more of like a male's uh, influence in that fashion world. And it's really hard to remove that influence from clothing styles. So it's just really difficult. I think it's really complex and I wish the film had the time to really work with that complexity. Totally. Yeah, because it's like there's there's a there's a connective tissue between her job, her occupation, her wants and goals, where she's living, who she's meeting, what she's interacting with. It's like there's multiple layers to all of the different things that Ellie is going through, but they all connect back to the same kind of the gender politics of the movie. And that's because it's made by people who know how to tell stories and make movies that are good. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot deeper than what I think. Granted, I hate to, like, bash on, like, general audiences, but I feel like it's probably a lot deeper than what a general audience goer was paying attention sure. to. Sure, yeah, yeah. It's it's asking for a little bit more work than I think general audiences will give. Again, like, I never try to – I don't want to seem pretentious or anything like that. Some people know, like, thinky of movie. That's just the way that it fucking is. That's, that's how they ingest it. And some movies present themselves as – don't worry, we'll do the thinking for you when in actuality, the thing that you can really enjoy the most out of it is if you're kind of letting it in and really kind of chewing on it while you're watching it and then giving yourself the amount of time that you need to chew on it afterwards. And Edgar Wright as a director has always kind of been like that. But Last Night in Soho is most definitely one of his most uh, chewing required um, during and after to really get... Um, to really get like what what what's of worth in the thing totally yeah yeah the full meal requires some time yeah so i will say that while last night in soho does have its problems and i wish it could have really like dug in a little bit more on some of these topics that i wish they would have explored further Overall, I don't know if it'll make my top 10, mm. but if I were to say, write a top 10 about scenes in films, mm. the first scene where Ellie goes to Soho for the first time mm. through Sandy's eyes and that whole sequence of all of the mirrors and them entering the club and Sandy meeting Jack for the first time and that first dance sequence, it's one of the, one of my favorite movie memories from this past year if not like possibly one of my favorite movie scenes of all time it's just such a fun scene it's a great scene um i remember telling you that uh, we got a note from the studio when we got it that um uh 
And I don't know if this will work because uh, Diana watched this. She never caught it at the theater. She watched it at home. And I've got a pretty cool sound setup in our projector room that we got over there. Uh, but not the biggest thing in the world. Not the greatest thing in the world. It's a very simple two-point speaker system. Um, but she said that she got um, the thing that happens in that, which is uh, for the first 20, 25 minutes or so of the movie, and the studio sent us a note so we didn't think anything was broken, uh, sound is only coming from speakers A and B, which are the ones that are behind the screen so that you that's where usually dialogue comes from because the, that's the way the human brain works is like, oh, those lips are moving. It's coming from there. And when that scene happens, when she first goes into Soho, it spreads out to all of the surround speakers for the first time and then continues to do that throughout the movie. And she said that she could she, that she got that um, at like a home at a home screening. Like it, it was uh, it's pretty neat that it's like because I when I watched it um, the second time, it was at my house on those speakers and uh, I noticed it it's definitely noticeable that it's something there and it's kind of like the audio equivalent of like Dorothy stepping out into Oz for the first time and going from black and white into color. Um, but I'll never forget that feeling watching it in the theater and just like knowing that something was coming, that he was going to do something with the sound. And then when it finally envelops you, it's, it works. It's just really, really epic shit and you know it's a little too close to it to call it one of the greatest moments in film but i think that it inarguably will eventually kind of just have to be in there have to yeah i have uh, a two speaker set up at home and they're good speakers but i don't have like a surround sound type of speaker set up in my house mm-hmm. But I will say that the film, for me, it just got louder. Yeah. But noticeably louder. Noticeably like louder, it, yeah. it became richer, mm-hmm. I guess I should say. More, Even there was though I more, was only still getting it from up front. Yeah, there was more depth to it. Like, it felt like there was more kind of, like, layers to it. Yeah, exactly. But I've watched um, a few behind-the-scenes videos of Edgar Wright fully exploring that scene in particular. Mm. And it's just so much fun to watch him talk about how they manufactured that scene with all of the mirror images that are going on. And to watch those two actresses play like so well off of each other. Yeah. And really mirror each other's movements. It's cool. I really like watching movies where rehearsal seems very important. I also like watching movies that are a little bit more off the cuff, rift. I think those are great too. But just watching that scene in particular plus a lot of the other parts of the movie too just how many things could have gone wrong and just how many things they had to practice 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 to get that right yeah it's a showstopper it moment all of it so smooth yeah. yeah it's incredible it's just uh the magic of filmmaking again where you just you don't even really stop to think about how much work went into those scenes because it's just so fluid mm-hmm. yeah it's uh, yeah. and it's our introduction to Matt fucking Smith coming on him, <laughs> moving on up in the world now, isn't he? Is he in Peaky He Blinders? is not, but he, but he is. Oh. He's going for it in this one. It's just you know, it's just that kind of like Pikey, uh, you know, long dock yes. British kind of accent where he's just like, "Well, all right then, that cheerio, governor, chippity chippity chop top top." Where he just talks like a cartoon wolf or something like that. Like I understand that people actually talk like this. 
Um, <laughs> I get it, it but it's the sure same. You do. It's sure the same you thing do. with like Australians. It's just like it's funny. It sounds funny to me, and I think that you guys know that it sounds funny because like you're saying weird shit too. And it's, uh... yeah. <laughs> Matt Smith is a real Jasper Jones. Yeah, it's a very Jasper, Jasper Jones. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, Matt Smith is uh, he, he plays so he plays Jack, um, and uh, he's really really good in this. Uh, I think me and you have talked about Matt Smith before on the podcast. I don't know if he was in something. You know, he probably wasn't, but we've probably talked about. I him. think we've talked about him on. I like something. talking about Matt Smith. What was he? Oh, uh, we were talking about The Crown not too yes. long ago. And that's where it really came up, where I was like, I don't really have a Matt Smith until I saw The Crown. That was really the first thing that I was like connecting with Matt Smith because I don't watch Doctor Who. I hadn't seen a couple of his smaller things. Um, so that was like one of the first things. And it's just like, God damn it. Good, good, good actor. Very good at his job. Very good. Um, yeah, when it comes to Doctor Who, there are some good things and some bad things. I really like his era, his eleventh uh, Doctor era of Doctor Who, mm-hmm. because also the companion stories work really well for me. Um, it became more of like a series long arc rather than an episodic arc when it came to the companions he was traveling with. But then that's kind of plagued doctors of uh, pretty much anyone past him because now they're very concerned with making companion story arcs be series long instead of episodic which can kind of bog down the series but yeah i watched doctor who from christopher eccleston the ninth doctor on but i fell off before jody whitaker came in so i need to catch back up for sure but he is my doctor and i was so excited to see him get cast as prince philip in the crown because now I feel like he's starting to get a little bit more critical acclaim. And then with Edgar Wright casting him in this movie, oh my goodness, I feel like he's really going to like launch to a next level of stardom, which he has always deserved. Because yeah, he's a very talented actor. And I'd never really seen him play any character as sinister as Jack yet. And that was really fun to watch. Because he's so, so charming. But it was cool to see him play this like leading man as well. I think it'll open up a lot for him. Yeah, it's he's he's got a specific look and he's got a uh-huh. specific kind of uh methodology I think of acting. Uh it, like again like it, you know he's going to be in the new Game of Thrones thing and everything like that. Like that's going to be like a big boost. Uh he's he's just uh he's got he's very unique. He is a mm-hmm. unique guy. And he can play creepy, he can play charming, you know, it's all of these things that you want somebody who is essentially like a character actor who can kind of like dig in and possibly start getting more leading man roles. Um, It is interesting that it's like sans Doctor Who, a lot of his roles that I really know are more kind of supporting uh, to a female lead, you know, like The Crown in this film. Um... And it mm-hmm. looks like that's going to be the case, too, in Game of Thrones, where he's playing, like, kind of the brother to the more kind of upfront main character, uh, mm-hmm. who is a woman. Um, he's he's really good as, like, little little sneaky Jack in this thing. And, you know, the, the, 
you know, the visual and audio comparisons between him and Terrence Stamp's character for that kind of misdirect, that little red herring and stuff is so good because it's essentially Matt Smith doing a really good Terrence Stamp, you know, like pikey, like kind of like the accent and stuff like that, which is just a joy to hear anybody talk like that, but especially Matt Smith and then especially Terrence Stamp just coming on in. Just. Yeah, Terrence Stamp in that is uh, wild. He He's so good in that role. Just to know that that character exists and moves in the world and isn't just at that bar 24-7. Like, the fact that that man exists and has to, like, eat meals is just wild to me. Like, his character in that film is just so cartoony, but also very convincing and grounded. He does a very good job. I was very impressed. Yeah, it's... it's uh, there's... That's the thing about the movie that kind of keeps its energy going is just like, you know, the the supporting cast. It, like, even though, you know, it's like if Thompson McKenzie is the main character and in a way she's kind of like the only character, like everybody else is a supporting, even, even like mm-hmm. Anna Taylor-Joy, like, you know, she's in memories and stuff like that. And even, um, uh, what is it, Michael... Ayeho, uh, who plays John, mm-hmm. the uh, love interest, quote unquote, who is just like so cool in this movie. Like he's just uh, who he played Mayhem in Attack the Block, which was um, made by Joe Cornish, Edgar Wright's writing partner. Uh, mm-hmm. He he's just so nice and just so sweet, and you don't know where he's coming from, and you're kind of like, what's going on here? And he's just like. He's got a really good smile. He's got like top 10 smiles like I've ever fucking seen. Um, yeah, he won me over with that smile. He's sure. really good. And it's it's just very interesting how, again, like we were talking about, like all the different worlds and themes that um, that Thompson McKenzie's character like moves through is, you know, the fashion designing world and, you know, the dating life and like living on your own like and being single and like this part of like you know like like finally being on your own and growing up and maturing and learning about the world and learning that maybe the world is not as sugar coated candied as you would have thought it was especially you know it's it's uh you know we haven't even really talked on it a little bit or we haven't really t- discussed it I think uh on this episode but I think we've talked about it in person of like how you know, nostalgia plays such a big part in this movie and how nostalgia has been being like weaponized by like studios and stuff like that to try and like harken back to eighties and nineties and stuff. And it's really cool that Edgar Wright's like kind of nostalgia esque movie as a director who always likes making homages and throwbacks and callbacks and stuff that his is kind of just like nostalgia can literally kill you. (laughs) <laughs> that it can literally like <laughs> if you do it too much and you're not careful like it will it will destroy you yeah that's a very good point i didn't really think about it that way but yeah he's really encouraging you to be present yeah it's you know it's it's be aware right now it's like you know he's it, the mood and it's kind of meta in that way too um where it's like she eloise like loves um the seventies for the music, the times, the dancing, the lifestyle. She wishes she could be back there. And we learned that like, that's not, uh, 
it's not as nice as it's, it's not great. It's not, it was not great back then uh, for many reasons. Um, but it's funny that he's just, he's Edgar Wright is uh, developing a character with this nostalgia for the seventies in that way. When the movie is actually um, his nostalgic kind of homaging to seventies European, like Gothic, thrillers and mysteries and stuff like that like he so he's he's discussing the idea of nostalgia and glorifying these things from the 70s while he himself is also going into the 70s and trying to like use these tactics and these tools but also kind of updating it and having it take place now you know it's uh the Suspiria remake you know notoriously like takes place like back in the 70s and stuff like that like when all of those things are happening and I kind of like that this movie takes place now very solidly in the here and now dealing with the problems that we have now and comparing them to the problems that we had back then and kind of, you know, the horror of realizing like not a whole lot has changed in 50 years, you know? And I think that that's one of the scariest parts of it. And maybe one of the parts that can, like we said, maybe go over the heads of more general audiences who maybe aren't considering what exactly is being discussed here outside of the larger, like, ah, spooky, ah, like that kind of thing. Yeah. He also, yeah, somehow manages to to make the nostalgia and the want to have lived in a different time period very universal. I feel like that's something that everyone kind of experiences when they're growing up, especially when they're in history classes and you have to do reports on different periods of time. And yeah, I remember doing... uh writing a paper about Woodstock and like the more you research it, the more fantastic it seems and how you kind of wished you had been born during that time because it just seemed like everyone was so alive and things were changing. And it really, I think it's just a part of growing up to kind of feel like where you are here and now is kind of boring and you kind of wished you weren't living a boring life. And especially when you're, you know, post high school, early college, you really do want to like harken back to a more interesting, exciting time. Because when you're learning about those things in school, or if you're only hearing the music or watching the films, you're really just seeing like a best of hit list. Like, sure, you're not really seeing the underside. But the fact that people do so much of that, like nostalgia diving, even now, it's kind of what keeps all of the bad stuff also alive from that nostalgia. So yeah, I kind of like it that it was like, because Ellie was digging in the past, in a positive way at first, all of the negative stuff started to seep through as well. And so much so that like the modern day, who you think is Jack, but isn't, when she starts really clawing at him, like the the bad stuff really comes back and he ends up dead. Just like you said, like nostalgia kind of killed him, but it was because Ellie was doing it, not because he was doing it. Yeah. So yeah, it's like every generation that chooses to dig in the past like that with no knowledge or frame of reference for what that digging will dig up um, is really interesting. And I think it's something that all of us really do. So it's a very universal feeling of like growing up and maturing and it's kind of like a second puberty in a way to kind of like relive all of those past lives that you didn't get to be a part of. But yeah, I I think it is trying to like ground Ellie in reality, say like, no, live here, please. (laughs) Yeah. You need to be here and move forward. Yeah. It's the, it's the, 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 it's like the psychological kind of twist of like, 
you know, it's the past version of the grass is always greener. It's like, man, remember how good it was? I mean, it's it's make America great again. It's like how they psychologically yeah. were able to create that. It's like, don't you remember when it used to be like this? And I'm just like, like what? You know, it's it like, was never like they that. try to glorify like the Reagan age and stuff like that. He was like, oh, you mean when like AIDS was just like ripping the world apart? Like, what are you fucking talking about? Like 80s. Come on. Jeffrey Dahmer <laughs> going around eating people. What are you talking about? Like nothing was ever perfect. Um, although I would imagine things were pretty perfect. Like the first week Back to the Future came out. That was a good week. It yeah. had to be a good week. Like, I feel like people were probably just like, you know what? I think we're going to be all right. I think it's going to be yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, this film too, just to touch on like a few moments that I really, really loved. Um, it it might not seem like it has those classic Edgar Wright quick editing shots, but it does. Um, I laughed out loud both times. I loved the scene where Ellie is talking to Sandy, Miss Collins, um, about letting her room. And she said, well, I've had a lot of girls just up and leave in the middle of the night. And Ellie said, I would never do that. And then it's like a fast, like, smash cut to her leaving in the middle of the night from her other apartment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I think is very clever. So it's got a lot of those classic Edgar Wright moments, even though I think they're pretty well masked mm -hmm. in this movie. Yeah, it's he's maturing he's like figuring out a way to kind of put his more like cartoonish sensibilities into genres that aren't necessarily like strictly dramatic and grown up you know but it's it's um he's he's treating it with more of a sincerity you know he's treating it with more mm -hmm. of a um again like not to say that he is not legitimate but like it's it feels like he is attempting to kind of legitimize his style by forming it into more um genre focused works like you know more like this is a spooky horror movie that's coming out in october go see it you know instead of just like he's like i made a diegetic musical about a getaway driver you know or like i made like a cartoon comic book film adaptation from a comic book that was an adaptation of video games and so i put video game stuff in there it's like <laughs> i was like oh no this one's about you know like buddy cops and stuff like that and cultisms and everything like that and then this one's about that it's like this just seems like it's more of a kind of straightforward this is a mystery horror movie being released in october come get your spook on and in doing that i think he is trying to just kind of not be too showy with his usual stylings, which again is like something that me and you agreed on is like towards the end when you really want to just be kind of sitting in with the revelations and what's going to happen. Sometimes his little, you know, his little stylings that he's been like, you know, granted that he has like, he has properly fixed into the movie by that point. It is not a shock when that stuff starts to happen and the two realities kind of start blending back together for it. It makes sense visually from what we've been taught and thematically it makes sense to do that to really communicate the point, but it can just be a little bit overboard. And I think that he's still kind of learning that and maybe, maybe he wanted it to be like hyper style over substance kind of stuff at that point to just really do a big bang. Like, does it work? Yeah, it works, but I feel like I agree with you. It would have worked better if it was just kind of like, take it easy. You don't need to 
throw all this cartoony glass shit at me. Like the two actors that are doing this, the three actors that are doing this right now are more than enough, like to really sell this, you know, that kind of thing. And I, I feel like as he, as he gets not older, but like as he continues to make different types of films and different wheelhouses with different people, I think he's learning how to be able to kind of trust his actors a little bit more and trust his development team and stuff so that maybe he doesn't really need to do as many, you know, showy editing tricks and camera tricks and stuff like that because he can just, he can do a scene like the first scene going into Soho at night and just like wow you and be like, you see, I'm really good. So here's the rest of the movie now. Yeah, yeah. I I would hope that maybe his his future films, yeah, would maybe feel a little bit more coherent as a whole. Because, yeah, as we've said, most of the film does feel that cohesion, definitely. It's just, yeah, that final, you know, couple scenes. I really like the final, final scene, though. The fashion show scene. Oh, I thought that yeah. was very cool. I love how it mirrors the beginning of the film with Ellie in her upstairs hallway outside of her bedroom. And then we get that like nice bookend at the end where it's her fashion show that she's designed. And I like too knowing that like not only is her mom with her, but Sandy is also with her now. So I like that Edgar Wright does have like a pretty positive ending to his film where he's like generational trauma can be a bad thing. But if you have a good hold on it, it can be a good thing. And it's a good thing to remember these people that you've lost in your life who did influence you in a positive way, it's okay to look past that. It's a complicated history with them. It doesn't have to be a scary history. The complications. Which I really liked. That's the biggest part because I think that the ending can be read both as uh, happy and uh, extremely terrifying. And because <laughs> yes. I think it's the way Anna Taylor-Joy, who we haven't really discussed too much, but she's so fucking good in this movie. Um, yeah. She's just like, she's just like one of the best like face actors she doesn't even have to say anything. You can just like, you can see so much on her. I still have to watch Queen's Gambit. Uh, I hear she's phenomenal in it. Um, and I hear that show just in general is phenomenal. Um, it's the, the the way that Thompson McKenzie and Anna Taylor-Joy play off of looking at each other in that scene with the, the different cuts back and forth. She sees her in the mirror. And it's like, on my first watch, I definitely read it like 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 you just talked about where it's like you have to remember that these things happened and whether they were good or bad they still happened and uh, we need to learn from history and learn from our mistakes and learn from the mistakes of others and all the all the just the, the generational complications of realizing how the world works and going through a traumatic situation and learning about the shared trauma between people and then on the second watch I was like wait is this a little scary it is 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 Ellie happy that she's there? What's what's Sandy doing? Is she mad? Like it's it's like it's I had just like a kind of like a complete one eighty turn on it, and then when I was thinking about, it, I was like, no no no, it's 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 happy. It's like you know happy quote unquote as like what they're trying to do. It's a positive ending, but I think it also is interesting that in the same way that you know, hey man. It's complicated, like U.S. history, as far as like how we've treated women, uh, pretty much just all around the world, uh, the entire history of women existing, uh, pretty complicated. Kind of um, embarrassing that nothing has really changed, and I feel like that complication is kind of inherent in the ending, kind of having those two ways of being read. I do think that the positive ending is much more readable and I think more intentional, but I do there there's some looks between those two that you're just kind of like, 
is uh, you can see that as like we got this, we got this, and I'm sorry that you're here, but I'm I'm thankful that I got to know your story, or like, oh my God, you're still here, and I'm never gonna be able to get rid of you, am I? You know, it's the same thing, but it's more like it's the good and the bad of like you know, 70s were really cool, but also pretty bad. Yeah, it it is problematic that Ellie doesn't really have control over when these people pop up. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really seem like she's looking for them. They just kind of come when they please. And uh, yeah, I can definitely see it being a read. It's like, Ellie, you need to go see a, a therapist. Yeah. Like, you need to talk to someone. Because, yeah, my these gift. people can't be around all the time. Yeah. <laughs> my gift. Fifa. It's also... You know, telling that they really pop up in mirrors. Primarily, they pop up in mirrors. They don't really pop up otherwise. And uh, Ellie being in the fashion industry, like, she's she can't outrun mirrors. Mm-hmm. Mirrors are going to be around her entire life. So if that's the path she continues to choose, you know. So, yeah, she probably should get that under control a little bit. Yep, yeah, maybe, like, talk to somebody about it. <laughs> yeah, try and chill. Try and chill out a little bit. Diana Rigg just tried yeah. to, like, stab you to death, which, like, cool way to go. Yeah, cool way to That'd go, for cool sure. Go. She, I think, like, my other main concern with the ending was I thought she poisoned her to kill her, but I don't really understand how that poison worked. Because all of a sudden, Ellie was very cool, calm, and collected and kind of seemed like she wasn't poisoned anymore. It was very strange. <laughs> yeah, it was... Um, I don't know what the poison was supposed to do. That's a good point. Uh was the poison supposed to kill her or just like make her groggy so that it would be easier to kill her? To stab her. To stab I her? Know. I don't know. Yeah. Because she is kind of, she's, she's ready to start stabbing people. Uh, she's like, yeah. she's like, ah, oh, here we go. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I like the reveal too at the end. Like I love, I love all the scenes with Diana Rigg, you know, and it, it's, it's so, so sweet that this movie starts with for Diana. Uh, the yeah. text uh, who Diana Reggio passed away before the release of the film. Uh, I think this is the last thing she did. I think so. I mean, I would imagine. I can't imagine that there's uh, much else coming out unless she did something. No, yeah, last night in Soho, the last thing. Mm-hmm. And then I guess I didn't know this until reading the Wikipedia that the actress who plays the the bar manager where Ellie works at the Toucan, mm-hmm. she also passed away. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Everybody's yeah. getting old. Yes. Um, yeah, Last Night in Soho. A cool name for a movie. Good cast. Looks great. Mm-hmm. Has one of the most cinematic moments that will probably be remembered for all of history once enough time has passed. And it's cool to say that about a movie that's about five or six years old. You know, it's um, it's a good movie. It's a step in the right direction for Edgar Wright. And, you know, it suck- the only thing that sucks about, uh, you know, being so close to an Edgar Wright movie release is that it's going to take some time before there's another one. But luckily, this movie was supposed to come out last year. Uh, this movie was supposed to come out May 2020 and got pushed yeah. all the way here. So hopefully... Edgar Wright's been developing something and working on something that he'll be able to push out pretty quick because I want another one. Yeah, it does seem uh, that his films, too, because he's kind of on the, I should say, smaller side of directing, like because he's not 
a household name. I will say that when he is working on something, it's usually pretty hush-hush, and you kind of don't find out that a new one's coming out until a couple months beforehand. Sure. Um, so yeah, it'll be exciting, because I do think he has something on his IMDb, something is billed for his next film, mm-hmm. and it sounds like kind of sci-fi-ish, which... Yeah, it looks, I mean, because, yeah, he's got a couple things on here. Um, The Running Man is in production right now. Um, Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Yep, which, uh, that's his, like, next big thing coming on up. Uh, Mm -hmm. Who wrote that? Uh, Michael Bacall and Edgar Wright. Yeah, okay. Interesting. Okay, we'll see. And then he's also got something like The Night Stalker, The Chain, Stage 13, Grasshopper Jungle, Fortunately, comma, The Milk. Collider and the ever elusive Baby Driver Two, which I, oh, I would love. I would absolutely love. You, you would. I would because I think that that movie has an ending that just begs for, for more. For more because now, he, like, it's you know, because my whole read on Baby Driver is that he's he's deaf at the end, and now he can't hear mm-hmm. at all. Um, and it's like, right. where do you go from there on that? And like, how do you? I hope that he's like stylistically changes it and like gets to do something else uh, that still kind of keeps like a musical quality to it, but like kind of changes it. And I, I just really like, uh, I know most of the characters are fucking dead, but I really, I just, I really like the characters in that. And I like the world of it. I think it, uh, you know, it was one of my favorite movies of that year. And I think that it's, a super fun movie and it's one that I it's one of the few movies where I would definitely give a sequel a chance even though it doesn't even really need one but I definitely love mm-hmm. to see Edgar Wright like return to that world because I think he just he has an idea already and you know the movie made money so it's like yeah if Edgar Wright can make a sequel that's even more legitimizing you know it's he gets to make a sequel to his own movie that did successful enough to do that hell yeah yeah, and I mean, with a few people aside, you know, obviously, Kevin Spacey, outside of that, like, the cast was very, very fun. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if he got just as eclectic and just as interesting of a cast for the sequel, John Bernthal I could, could come convinced. back. Because you know, John Bernthal oh, just man. disappears in the beginning. I love John Bernthal so much. He's the I'm so happy for him. He's, the he's done a lot of work this year. He did. Yeah, I still haven't seen Small Engine Repair. I really need to watch that oh, one. Oh, buddy. I, I'm so excited for that. Um, and Yeah, that's a good one. What is it? He just... Uh, oh, I want to watch King Richard. I hear he's great in that one. Um, he was in um, that FX show. I think it was FX. Uh, done by... I'm blanking on his name. The guy from The Office. Uh... Is it BJ Novak? I think so. Oh yeah, the, he did this. Yeah, the uh, like, limited series. Yeah, like the short film kind of stuff, like the pitch or something like that. Yeah, and his John Barenthal's episode is very good, very very good. Yeah, good dude. He's a good guy. But yeah, I think we've kind of maybe reached the end. I mean, uh, I think that's it. Yeah, for last night we're Soho. pretty excited about what he's got coming up next. It was fun to get back to the old Edgar. And talk about him yeah. a little bit, and uh, you know, next next month we'll be back to Colette. We only got a couple more episodes of that, and then uh, we'll be all caught up I'm pr- until we wait for like another five movies to fill up, yep. and then we'll do another Colette stuff mm-hmm. podcast. Yep. That's the way. That's the way it works. That's that's the show. That's, that's the show. The way the cookie crumbles. Hmm. But yeah, we can get into uh, really quickly. I'll give a rundown, listeners of. 
movies that are to come for the Colette stuff, because next time, it's going to be really exciting, because uh, we're getting into, obviously, some of our favorite, most recent Tony Colette works. Uh, it's going to be the Hereditary episode, which we're very psyched to get into. Uh, we'll be watching Please Stand By, Hereditary, Hearts Beat Loud, an Arcade Fire music video for Money Plus Love, Birthmarked, the short series on Netflix uh, called Wanderlust, uh, Let's Dance on YouTube, which I believe is also more of like a short, and Velvet Buzzsaw, which I meant to see when it came out, and I never did, so I'm excited to get into Velvet Buzzsaw as well. Yeah, I didn't see Velvet Buzzsaw when it came out, but I did watch it um, within the past year because I was just really in the mood for it, and um, that's going to be a fun one to talk about. Yeah, yeah. But other than that, Burge, thanks so much for getting into more Edgar Wright stuff with me. As always, this was fun. as always, my pleasure. We uh, definitely tried to not talk about these films, and I think we did a pretty good job. We did. We actively we were, were just quiet. like, we would just like nod at each other. Ba-ba-ba. Like, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Are you happy? <laughs> I am happy. Good. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, this was fun. And, uh, you know, it's, <clears throat> it's the Tuesday before Christmas. We're about to get into a little bit more of like a little busy time over at the theater with the new Matrix coming out, uh, which I get to watch tonight. I'm very excited. Um, Woohoo! And, uh, you know, happy holidays to you and to our listeners. Uh, it's a, another scary one. Um, yeah. And hope everybody is staying safe and, you know, doing what they're comfortable with and uh, being safe and traveling and being responsible and all that stuff. You know, it's with with everything that's going on, you know, we should be able to take these little delights. Uh, and as long as we're responsible and safe about it, I think that everything's going to be okay. It's not as bad as it was last year, even though it is still extremely bad. Um, that's it. Happy holidays to everybody. And, you know, if uh, if you guys want to mail me a uh, Peaky Blinders poster, you can just uh, tweet at us and I'll send you, I'll send you my address. Or I'll, I'll send you the address you can send it to. I'm not going to tell you where I live. Um, that'll, that'll be it. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope someone treats you this year, Bird. Pay a for employing the year, Michael. <laughs> Michael. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> yes, happy holidays, everyone, and we will catch you next time. Bye. Peace. Peace.